Welcome to another episode of Teaching Moments. Hi, how are you doing? I'm Kirk Faulkner. I'm Craig Faulkner, and we're here to teach you something. We're here to teach you <laughs> up. <laughs> exactly. And you're pumped up. You seem pretty motivated tonight. I am very motivated tonight because tonight we are talking about motivation. Yes. And I've been studying motivation all week. I don't know if I learned anything useful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. We I, were talking before the podcast, and you are a warehouse full of motivational facts, statistics. Yeah. Couldn't we had about it. two podcasts worth of conversation before we got on the we mic did. tonight, <laughs> <laughs> which is good. One of the reasons I think we talked so much before this episode is because this is a huge, huge topic. And it's one of those topics that the more you get into it, the more it spirals out. That's right. For example, I mean, we were talking about, is this a teaching moment about how I become more motivated mm -hmm. to do things or what motivates me or what motivation is right <laughs> like, where right. does it come from how do you motivate others yeah and um, then how does motivation tie into goal setting and right. the discussion could go on and on and on yeah we should also bring up that we made the executive decision to leave the dogs in the room yes we're going to see how that works we're going to see how annoying <laughs> the dogs are but i feel like it gives it a homey feel a down home yeah hey the dogs are in my office <laughs> so the reason why i got onto this topic of motivation is because i was reading uh daniel pink's book oh come on we just started i was reading daniel pink's book drive which is all about motivation it's about why people do things and one of the things i liked in that book is that he talked about the kind of three epochs of motivation like uh, three periods of motivation in human history there was in the beginning of humans when we were kind of cavemen it was all just about getting food into your mouth and making sure wolves didn't eat you yeah that's got to be strong motivation yeah that is that's <laughs> top level preservation of life and then there was kind of the motivation that's been for a lot of humanity, which is level two, which is the carrot and the stick. You get a reward if you do something good. You get punished if you do something bad. Gets people to the factory on time. Gets them home. You know. Right. And when I hear you say that, I think of the industrial age. Yeah. It was a carrot and the stick. If you didn't show up in time, if you didn't produce X number of widgets, you got the stick. Yeah. It makes me think of high school. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, one of the criticisms of modern high school is that it's a system that was set up for factories. It was set up to make factory workers, not to make, you know, kind of the thought workers that we need today. Right, right. But he talks about how we're in this third period now where people have switched from that second system, which was he calls extrinsic motivation, which means from the outside uh -huh. to intrinsic motivation, which is from the inside. You and I were talking about this, about how his book is very interesting, but it really is written to managers, owners of business. Right. In fact, there's a really, really good whiteboard video that really is a takeoff from this book. And if you want to take a look at that, just go to YouTube, type in Daniel Pink, mm -hmm. and that video will come up. I forget the name of it, yeah, but it would definitely, as a, millions of people have watched that video. Yeah, and he's got a great TED Talk too. Yeah, it summarizes it really well. One of the things I liked about the book and that I thought was applicable and that I thought would work for our podcast is that he identified three things that somebody can experience in their job, which will help them feel intrinsically motivated. While it definitely is written to managers and business owners who are trying to help their 
employees be more motivated. I think for anybody who has a job or who has something that they want to do, you can kind of turn it around and say, all right, these are things I need to experience in my job. How am I going to get there? Right. I find that real interesting how if you're in a job and you don't have a management position, you may think to yourself, well, if you would read this book or watch the video, you'd think, why isn't my manager doing these things that Daniel Pink is talking about? But when the same person outside of business gets in a group setting and has any kind of managerial or leadership responsibility, it could be in a service organization, a social group, etc. Those principles still can apply, but they most often than not become just as guilty as their managers right. are in terms of carrying a pretty heavy stick in their management roles. And so I think that's a fun thing about looking at that book and watching that video, if you can get in your mind, yeah, this isn't just for managers, mm -hmm. although you'd be inclined to think that initially, yeah. it's something that I can use in my personal life. And actually, as you said that, it occurs to me that another big benefit of this is if, say you're at the very bottom of the totem pole at your job, you can manage up with these principles. If you find a way to feel these things or find these things in your own job, I mean, your manager will get inspired. So anyway, without further ado, the three things that he talks about are autonomy, mastery, and purpose. If you feel those things in your job, then you will just want to do your work. You know, uh, bonuses won't help or make that big of a difference to you. you you'll come in and you'll want to just pump away every day at that job. So anyway, it's right. been great having you on the podcast. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> we'll, we'll see you next episode. No, okay. We'll get into it a little more, but... <laughs> Yeah, so autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Well, autonomy, the first thing I think about is how difficult it is to tell a Faulkner anything. Yeah. We have a common trait in our family of seven plus the two dogs. I think it's hard to tell the two dogs anything, is we like autonomy. We don't really like to be told what to do. Right. We like to be given a task, and then we like to go figure out that task. And right. I think that's true for all of us. Yeah. Well, with the exception of me. I'm such a team player and like to be micromanaged. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a big theme out there right now. I think that's why entrepreneurship is such a big deal is that people are looking for that autonomy and they go, well, you know, I'll just go start my own team, which I think sometimes they don't fully appreciate the cost and the effort that it's going to take to right. achieve that. And I think if you can feel autonomous within the job you have or the team that you're working on, maybe you don't have to go out and start a whole new thing just so you have your own baseball game or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, for me, when I don't feel the autonomy in a group, Mm -hmm. where I feel like I'm given assignments, you know, I'm looking back over the years, I don't feel motivated to really give it my all, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to come in and micromanage me, then I'm going to do what you're asking. I'm going to check the list and I'm probably not going to do a lot more. So the big benefit of autonomy is feeling that you're trusted. Yeah. And trust is a big motivator, isn't it? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that aspect of it, but it's that being part of the team is to trust others and to be trusted. So you're trusting others to be great autonomous players on the team and expecting that trust to come back to you. And that back and forth is really meaningful. Yeah. He breaks autonomy down into three parts, which is task, time, and team, or like what you do, when you do it, and who you do it with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think definitely what you do is obvious. If we could all just choose what we did all the time, 
I guess that would be great. Would that be great? No, I don't think so. It wouldn't make you stretch. I think with all of these things is you don't want to have to choose it all the time, but you want to feel like you have influence on it, right? So like, I don't necessarily want to define everything I do at my job, but I definitely want to have an influence. Like if I really like doing some things, I would like to do more of them. And if I don't, I really don't like doing one thing, maybe I can get that off my plate. Yeah, I think of a specific example of a task that I was assigned shortly after selling Faulkner Media Group to K1, which, who was our private equity partner. One of the tasks I was assigned is on a weekly basis, we had a phone call where we were going to come back and return a report, and then we'd go into up to LA or they'd come down, the managing partners would come down. And my task as CEO was to go through a slide deck or part of a slide deck. Now, when I say go through the slide deck. I wasn't going through all the slide deck, but ultimately as a CEO, I had the responsibility to make sure that that happened. I didn't like that mm -hmm. because I don't naturally gravitate towards compiling that much information. And thank goodness we had senior members of the executive team who were far better than I was to marshal all that information together and, and they did an awesome job. But my point here is I still had that task. I still had to be conversant with that slide deck. And the benefit of that was it helped me drill deeper and understand things that I really needed to understand where I perhaps wouldn't have just naturally done. So being assigned tasks that you don't enjoy, that may not necessarily come natural, can really help stretch and increase your understanding overall in your activities. You know, the word that comes to mind when I was just listening to you talk about that and think about this in general, and especially when I think about time, your schedule is just ownership. You can either look at your job and what you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis as something put upon you by someone else or something that you have come to yourself and that you're owning. I think one of the most unmotivating things that there is is the time card where you go in and you check in. And from the moment you check in, you're handing all your time over to the company. You know, you sold your soul to the company, the company store. store. <laughs> and then when you check out, you're free. That's a really unmotivating way to look at that amount of time that you spend there. And really, if that's how you're looking at that time, why would you care how you spend that time? Why would you want to make the most of that time? It's not your time anymore. But if you own your time or you own your to-do list and it is what you have chosen to do, even the parts that you don't like, even like the eating your vegetables kind mm -hmm. of part of it all, it really changes it up. You know, when I plan out my schedule, I try to put the things that I'm doing in my personal life on my work schedule. Like if I have things after work or before work, if I'm going to the gym or whatever, I want it all to be there because it's all my time. You know, I right. own all of that. Right. I'm just choosing to yeah, allot how, a certain amount of it. Yeah. Well, so we had task, we had time. What was uh, the third element? Who you do it with, with whom okay. you do it. Yeah. Your team. That's a tough one, especially if you're on a team with somebody who you do not like. That can completely ruin your motivation. <laughs> so what, what do you do? That's probably never happened to you. It has. Yeah, <laughs> it has. I think we're thinking of the same person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have the answer to that because I didn't handle it very well. <laughs> yeah. So 
you know, I'm trying to think, I know what's happened to me, you know, over the years, you're part of a team and whether you're a member of the team or you're leading the team and there's someone in the group, I think the thing that I try to do is take a cleansing breath before you go into that environment and recognize that the individual that you're going to be working with certainly does have things to uh, contribute. But from a very practical standpoint, there have been times where it just is nearly impossible to collaborate with somebody mm -hmm. on a team. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happens, I don't think this should be the norm. I think it should be the exception to the rule. I don't think there's anything wrong, though, to change the dynamics of that group. Right. But you got to make sure that it's not you that's being the difficult one versus the other person. I know it's from a lot of places, but I've heard it on Justified, where he says, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you meet a jerk... Maybe you just met a jerk. Yeah. But if you wake up in the morning and all you meet all day are jerks. Right. Maybe you're the jerk. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think it's worth paying attention to. And going back to uh, something we talked about in the improv episode, I think if you can come in and really focus on making sure that everyone else is succeeding, if that is your main focus with your team, that you're coming in and making sure that everybody is being their most successful self, I would imagine that 99 out of 100 interpersonal problems will disappear in those circumstances. And then the 100th time, then you have to start keeping a dossier. On that's that right. One. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like helping other people succeed that in turns helps you succeed. Yeah. And I think that's uh, definitely something to really stay focused on. Yeah. When I think about the times I've had an opportunity to choose somebody, say there's somebody at the office or somebody, a collaborator that I really wanted to work with and they wanted to work with me and we work together. I mean, that's incredibly motivating. That can be, you know, that's Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in a garage together somewhere. That kind of stuff can produce immense results. And so if you are managing people, it's something to consider is like really let people gravitate towards who they gravitate to. People tend to find the people who complete their skill sets and who they have great communication paradigms with. And there's really a lot of... I hate to use the word, a lot of synergy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is. There can be. So I think the millennials like autonomy. Maybe to a, a fault. I don't know if that's fair to say. I mean, it's really important to everybody to be able to work remotely now, and they should probably have wear on the here. And that's interesting you bring that up because a company that I consult with was real big on letting people work remotely mm -hmm. until they experienced what that meant. Yeah. And what that meant was communication problems, being able to assign tasks in a timely fashion, being able to communicate and have that interpersonal communication flow that is so much more dynamic live. And so there were a lot of frustrations about tasks, about the time that was being spent and about the team and the dynamics of the team. I'm not saying I'm not a fan, but I think it has to be very, very carefully defined in the spirit of full disclosure and transparency. I think that typically having team members all working together in a work environment is certainly more effective. There's always exceptions to that rule. I know some people really work better. I really do think for some people it is the best way for them. Maybe it's just the best for their life. I don't know if it may be the organization or what. I know for me personally, I have a really hard time working remotely, especially if that's the only way I'm working. It's way harder for me to stay on task. It's way harder for me to stay tied in with the team. I like coming in and seeing people personally. Autonomy, mastery is the second one of these. 
I think that is something that drives us all. You know, that whole uh, Malcolm Gladwell thing about the 10,000 hours, that was right. an idea that caught yeah. on a little bit, huh? Everybody's yeah. like, oh, just 10,000 yeah. hours? 10,000 hours, like, be concert pianist. <laughs> One of the pieces of uh, swag that you can buy on our website is a clock that you just hit it, and it starts timing your 10,000 hours. So, like, That's nice, yeah. yeah anything that you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> what do you call that? Merchandise. It's, Merch. It's Teaching Moments Merchandise. I'm already thinking <laughs> about it. So he talked about mastery getting into a state of flow. What's your trick for getting into flow? What does flow mean to you? My dad taught me that if you're a salesman, when you're selling, you love your job. And when you're not selling, you hate your job. And I know that's maybe a little corny analogy, but when you're doing your job well, when you feel like you're really firing on all cylinders, when you feel like you're making a contribution, when you're contributing, delivering on time, whatever it may be, there's nothing really more rewarding than that. Certainly, I think that's true for you know your interpersonal relationships also. When you have a job or a task and you're scratching your head all the time, you're continually having to go gather more information and you don't really understand the task at hand, there's nothing more frustrating for me because at the end of the day and you don't feel like you've accomplished anything. The only thing more frustrating than that might be when you have a job or a task that's beneath you. It's like a little too easy and you got to do that all day. Yeah. So it's like a Goldilocks thing. Yeah, that's true. So I think for me, a wide variety of tasks motivate me. Doing things that are easy that mm -hmm. I can accomplish and check off a list and say, hey, got that done. That was nice, neat, and tidy. And then I've got to come up with a new product idea. That's heavy lifting. I may not be able to get that done in a four-hour period, a four-day period, or even a four-week period. Now, if you were to say, hey, Craig, I'm going to give you a task to set up a new accounting software package for a company, that would be very, very frustrating to me. It would be hard to get in the flow. And what I would do is I would go out, I'd hire individuals to do that. That wouldn't be all that rewarding to me because it's something that I just wouldn't have as much expertise as, say, asking my CFO to take charge of something like that. One thing he brought up about flow, and I think it's totally true, and I think when I say it, you'll really agree with it because you and I talk about this concept a lot in some of our presentations we've done together. You need ongoing, very clear feedback. You gotta have that feedback loop going, letting you know how you're doing. Because you got this job, it's challenging, but it's not impossible, and you're doing your best work on it. If you don't know that you're nailing it, you can't get into the groove, but if you are getting that feedback, the feedback can come in a lot of different ways. You know, like if you're playing at a basketball game, obviously you're watching the scoreboard or if you're uh, playing guitar, you can hear it. If you're doing work, it's a little different. The feedback's got to either come from other people or maybe you can recognize it yourself in some ways, but you do need to tie into some way that's letting you know you're hitting the mark consistently in order to get that flow going. Yeah, and that's a very interesting point. Much of my career has been around developing marketing products for financial advisors. And there's always been a really delicate balance because I've always believed a big part of my job was to understand what our target market needed, desired, and was going to really be motivating and sell well. Um, so yes, I want feedback, but no, I don't want too much feedback because that's going to cloud my creative thought process and really stifle my motivation. In thinking about this, I think about Apple. Steve Jobs was notorious for not wanting any feedback. 
He didn't want feedback about how a uh, product looked. He had in his mind a very clear picture of the end product and what it was going to do for the target market, hmm. which is basically the entire human race. Your job as like a CEO of a company is pretty varied, right? So like when you look back at a time when you felt like you were in flow, like you were really nailing it, what were you doing? Like what was the thing that you were doing? Or was it a bunch of things culminating? Was it like, were you just in the zone? Well, you know, for me, when I felt like I was in the flow was when we had a clear vision of the task in front of us. Mm -hmm. And when we had the team in place to really marshal the forces and the energy together mm -hmm. to accomplish that. And then coming back on a regular basis to really monitor the progress. In the early, early days, back in 86 and 85, when I started our first company, literally, I was sitting down with three by five cards and I was writing key thoughts uh, that I wanted to put into presentation. I didn't even do an outline. Yeah. I just wrote thoughts and then I would shuffle the thoughts and I would come up with the basic flow of a presentation. When I got in that flow, that was extraordinarily motivating to me because I could then, in my mind, I could see that presentation and then I could see the imagery that would go along with the presentation, the text that would support the presentation, et yeah. cetera. Does that make sense? When we were talking about it, I could tell that you weren't completely buying the feedback thing. And then I was kind of thinking about it myself and I was like, well, one of the times I think I'm most in flow is when I get into a really good flow writing and I'm not getting any feedback when I'm writing. Maybe this is a point where Daniel Pink and this podcast diverge a little bit. <laughs> I mean, obviously there's times like when I've been presenting and I know you've felt this and you are in tune with the audience, right? And you're getting that positive feedback from the audience, you can tell, and that feeds back into your energy and you get kind of an upward spiral going. Right. That's definitely a thing. And I, I get that. But I do think what you were saying is true. I think that sometimes my strongest moments of flow have been when I'm by myself, there isn't any feedback coming in. I'm able to completely just dive in and go in a direction and I don't have to worry about what anybody else is thinking about it and I'm just cruising with it. And I guess at the end of that, eventually you got to show it to somebody. <laughs> yeah, but I would argue that the presentations that you and I worked on together, you would work on a presentation, you'd come in my office, we'd review it, and we'd collaborate, yeah, and we'd make adjustments on the presentation. To me, that's very motivating. That's very rewarding to me if I work on something, I show it to someone that I trust, and maybe that's a part of the feedback loop or the collaboration is you've got to work with people you trust, otherwise... It is one of the fun and challenging things about working with you is that we have known each other my whole life, at yeah. least. <laughs> and I can tell instantly just by the look on your face whether you like an idea or not. Right. It's very hard for you to hide. I'm pretty transparent. Yeah. I could tell right when I brought up the feedback thing that like you had a little bit of an issue with it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well. Uh. <laughs> but that is interesting. I mean, that goes back to surrounding yourself with people that you have great communication with because really maybe that is part of it too, that you like become that feedback system for each other in a way that doesn't have to be as formal as like somebody going through and giving you notes or that instant kind of back and forth. Like that actually, I definitely see how that gets you into a state of creativity and flow. So Feedback can really enlighten and inspire your motivation and it can also stifle motivation. And so I think you have to understand that about yourself and then 
hopefully you can put yourself in a position where you can moderate that feedback when it best suits you for your motivation. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. I liked it. Okay. <laughs> the other thing that he said about mastery is that it's never ending. Like you never get there. He calls it an asthmatote or something like that. You know, like uh, one of those graphs that gets really closer and closer to a line, but it never mm -hmm. totally gets there. Okay. But I don't feel like I ever really got there on anything in my life. So I don't know if that's really mastery is the only time I yeah. experienced that. Well, I think so many of us, we master something to the point that we can excel at it, but we don't become necessarily just exceptional at the it. The greatest of all time, the right. goat. I think that's okay. I think that's okay too. Yeah. So the last one on this, and if we were following Simon Sinek's advice, we would have started with this, but it's purpose. Yeah. Simon Sinek wrote, yeah. start with start why. Start with why, yeah. But purpose, that's a tricky one. Because, for example, my job is I work at a place where I do the marketing for a place that makes marketing software for financial advisors. So what is the purpose? Like, what's the big purpose of my job? Well, I got to go a couple steps to connect myself with the purpose. I've done the exercise. The exercise is I think about the end, end, end user whose life gets better because their financial advisor helped them plan for retirement or plan for their family or did that. And I helped that financial advisor find them because I helped him with his marketing. And I helped him with his marketing by making our product look good enough that he bought. I mean, it's a couple steps removed, but I can keep an eye on it. What's your thought about tying into purpose? Like how important is it? Uh, you know, is it I, motivating? Yeah, I think it is. You know, over the years, as I've started the different companies, you know, effectively worked for myself all these years, what has been my overriding purpose? Certainly it's multifaceted, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a financial goal that pops into your mind immediately. For me, and especially this last go around, you know, starting FMG Suite back in that's Faulkner Media Group back in 2011, for me, it was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a self-actualization. I look back and yeah, there was a financial motivation without a doubt. We just come out of the recession, the markets were down, everybody's holdings were down, mm -hmm. but I didn't financially have to start another company for Pete's sake. That wasn't the motivation. The motivation for me was I had this drive, I had this motivation. I had missed the whole creative process. I had missed mm -hmm. the collaboration. I had missed the team building effort. And there's nothing more rewarding or motivating to me to have those experiences. It was that self-actualization feeling like, okay, now that I've taken care of my physical needs, now that I've taken care of my you know, emotional health needs and my self-esteem needs and, and all those things, how do I really put the cherry on the top uh, Oh boy. Oh, uh, hush, hush, hush up. <laughs> that I'd say would have physical needs right there from Johnny. <laughs> but and at this stage in my life, that was, I've got to say, really the most rewarding thing that I've done in my career from a self-actualization standpoint. I wrestle with this a lot in my head. And I think this is something a lot of people think about these days is like, we can't all work for... Greenpeace or the Salvation Army or whatever. We can't all just be feeding the homeless all the time, or can we? I don't know. Do you have to have an idea about your job that is contributing to the world in a positive way in order to feel tied into the purpose? Or can the role that just having a job plays in your life 
be the purpose. Absolutely. I think it's a big mistake to think what's going to motivate me in life and what I'm going to, you know, base my life against is this criteria that I've got to be an entrepreneur or I've got mm-hmm. to successfully be some large business leader. I mean, life is a lot more than business. And in life, we have to provide for ourselves. If you have a family, you've got to help support the family. So I think your work becomes just a part of that. Mm-hmm. Now, I've talked to a lot of people over the years about entrepreneurship. And I firmly believe that there are some people that should be entrepreneurs, and there are a lot of people that shouldn't. Now, who am I to judge who should and who shouldn't? I certainly wouldn't judge. But I think that an individual that can recognize that work is just a part of their life and is going to be part of their motivation, in some ways may be better off than an entrepreneur that's consumed with their idea because you can become imbalanced. Do you ever have a moment where you looked at what you did, not your life or the way that you were living your life, but specifically what it was that you were making and thought, why am I spending all of this time on this thing and not some other thing? Maybe you had an idea of some other thing that maybe you would have wanted to do and that you just kind of questioned what the purpose was of what it was you were doing. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be surprised if most people don't question that to a certain degree. I mean, some people are lucky enough to graduate from high school and then go on to college and they know exactly what they want to do, whether it's a professional service, they're just passionate about it. I want to become a physician. This is the type of medicine I want to specialize in. That's not the case for most of us. Mm -hmm. I think this is where this concept that you introduced to me that I love, that's where the adjacent possible comes in. As you are anxiously engaged in working, and working can be in and of itself very motivational. As you are working, you look for opportunities. And as opportunities arise, they typically don't arise outside some unrelated field. They arise from an adjacent possibility. I was a financial planner. I was giving seminars. Someone asked me about the seminars. I thought, why don't I go into publishing and publishing these seminars? It was the adjacent possible. I didn't need a 180 degree refocus. I needed a 15 degree refocusing of my time, talent, and energies. You didn't need to do the best thing in the whole world. You needed to do the best thing in your world that you could do right there. Right. And use your talents the best way right there. I think that's interesting. I mean, to be completely honest, I struggle with the concept of purpose a lot. Like it's something I think about a lot. I've looked into a lot of different ideas about what creates purpose and what drives people. And I think it's it's an ongoing question for me. I think the central element to purpose, it can't be just about you. I think when you're looking at purpose, if you want to have purpose as a part of your motivation, it has to be other-centered. That's another thing we were talking about a little mm-hmm. bit before we started this podcast. And when you have purpose, my purpose of starting a company was to help financial advisors market more effectively to the consumer. The consumer could make better decisions. But also part of my purpose was to you know provide opportunity for team members to grow and expand in their career. I mean, that mm-hmm. was very, very rewarding for me. So I think your purpose, while it can be anchored in self-motivation, it needs to also be anchored in other people too. What's your purpose for this podcast? Why are we doing this? Well, I'll tell you my purpose. The big thing that I'm motivated in doing as I look forward is I feel like I've got 
this 35 years of experience and I'd like to share it. I really would like to share it. If I can share it and monetize it some way, that's great. But the monetization is not a big deal. And you and I have talked about this. That's not nearly the motivation of me sitting down and sharing my experiences, you know, failures, successes, frustrations. And I get, you know, a lot of joy and a lot of satisfaction from being able to think, you know, I could help others that are motivated. So that really is my major motivation. How about you? Well, I have a few. I was thinking about this on the drive over today. One of them definitely is going back to mastery is um, when we were making the Cancer with Craig podcast, I felt like we got into a flow with it. I felt like we did a good job. It was very satisfying to me. Like it was satisfying to go back and listen to them. It was satisfying to have other people listen to them and think that we did a good job. It was satisfying while we made them. I think this podcast is more of a challenge. And I don't think that I've snapped into the flow yet to the same degree, but I want to get there. Right. So there's a challenge aspect to it. I think that one of the things that I do best and you do best and mom does best and a lot of the Faulkners all do best is we are good at learning something and turning around and teaching it to other people. I think it's one of our gifts is that we are good at processing information, turning around and telling it to other people in a way that it's meaningful to them in a way that they maybe wouldn't have been able to access it before. It's one of the things that I do that makes me feel the most useful, like in the world. Yeah, and you have an exceptional ability to do that. It's interesting because you mentioned that's a common trait in the family. I think it is, and it is something that really motivates us. It mm -hmm. motivates us to do things. I mean, I think of Evan. Evan probably has a stronger slant towards business acumen, and he's doing great in the real estate arena, but I've seen him get up in a church setting and do a phenomenal job getting content and being able to disseminate to a group of people yeah. and having them really understand it. So I think that even though we have different interests in the family, I do think that's a common trait. So let's go back. I want to go back because I like this discussion. I like you know our discussion with Daniel Pink. Go back and kind of summarize the points so we can kind of anchor ourselves. So yeah, going back, the idea is there's different levels of human motivation, level 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. Mm -hmm. And motivation 3.0 is all about intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. So in 2.0, it was about the classic conditioning model of the carrot and the stick mm -hmm. where you get rewards for doing good things and punishment for doing bad. That doesn't work as well, especially for thought workers. It works well for people who are doing mundane tasks. Okay. But people who have like creative tasks right. to do, they need intrinsic motivation. And the three elements of intrinsic motivation were autonomy, where you get to choose what you do, when you do it, and who you do it with. Mastery, which is all about getting into flow, and then purpose, you know, which is the why, the bigger thing that you're tying into. And if you can experience all three of those things at your task that you're doing, uh, then you feel this intrinsic motivation. You have this desire to do it to the point that when people who are working intrinsically are given extrinsic motivators like money like if you go to somebody who's already working intrinsically and then you give them an extrinsic motivator they actually do worse the motivation that can come from inside you when you feel these things is way more proactive than anything somebody coming from the outside i have learned over the years that one of the hardest things to do is to structure financial motivation so often a financial 
quote, motivator becomes a demotivator. And I think the best of breed today, you know, in terms of thought, in terms of compensation is you compensate people fairly all along the way. And then you create this intrinsic work environment, the autonomy and everything that we're talking about here. And that's what's motivating for people to hang this carrot out and say, you get this pile of gold at the end of a project, but there are all this criteria that you've got to meet. Typically, you're setting yourself up for a failure because you're not going to be able to check all the boxes. Then the person that was working just for the money becomes very frustrated. And again, this is where I think Daniel Pink's whiteboard video does such an exceptional job of how dismal holding that Karen out is and fails yeah. in today's society. So I think it comes down to also that um, when you get right down to it, your time and your life, the segments of your life that is time is invaluable. There is no price. It's priceless, right? There is no price that you can put on it so that anytime you get pushed into a place where you feel like you're getting a price for your time, there's a part of your mind that goes, that's not enough. Right. It's not worth it. My time's worth more than that because there really isn't any price that you can put on time that's completely worth it. What instead you need is you need to have work. You got to do work anyway, whether people are going to pay you for it or not. Like you just need to work and be working as a person in order to feel like a full person. And then you also need money to live and survive and all of that. It's interesting that even though they're completely related in your mind, they almost can't be, you know, they say you would do it for free. Right. You know, right. You can't do it for free because you got to have the money and there's a whole system set up. Yeah. But, but uh, we're doing this for free. We are doing this for free. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because we're so motivated. I agree. Do we have time to talk about the the testosterone? Yeah. Uh, so I have this whole second half of this thing that I wanted to talk to you about tonight. <laughs> Let's just hit it. Let's take okay. five minutes because I think this is fascinating. I got really interested in this idea of motivation. And I was like, what actually is happening in your brain when you do something? Like what makes you decide to do it and then carry through with that decision and get from one place to another? And I'm going to give this really simplified view because when it comes to neurochemistry, first off, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I probably understand just like an iceberg tip of exactly what I'm talking about. And also when you're talking about the brain, everything is so interconnected in your brain that one part of your brain, you could say, well, it's for this and it does this, but it also does 15 other things or probably 5,000 other things that we you know, barely understand. But there is this one little part of your brain called the nucleus accumbens. And it's this little station that basically triggers your motivation. It is where motivation is kind of born and launched. And the way that happens is you will experience a cue, C-U-E, a cue somewhere. And that cue will trigger a bunch of things in your mind and a hormone will reach the nucleus accumbens. And there's three main hormones. There's probably a lot, I don't know, but there's three big ones that really define your actions. And it's oxytocin, testosterone, and orexin, O-R-E-X-I-N. And oxytocin goes up there when you see something about love or community. When a woman sees a baby, a lot of oxytocin is released. When people touch, skin-to-skin -skin contact releases oxytocin. Basically, all those kind of good lovey-dovey feelings. Testosterone is all about power and dominance and winning. Uh, physical activity. Physical activity. Yeah. It's a lot about competition. It's about survival when it gets right down to mm -hmm. it, you know. 
And then orexin is a really interesting one I was reading about today that has a lot to do with food and sleep and your circadian rhythms and basically kind of your health and well-being of your body. So as you get the cues from life, as you go through your life, and these hormones hit the nucleus accumbens, it then releases a bunch of dopamine. And dopamine is this neurotransmitter that goes through your brain and basically powers your motivation to execute a plan. And the plan is to get you from one point to the other, and at the other point is a reward of some sort. That's all of our decisions. They all come from this. Well, and what I like about this, you know, we talked about this before we started. I really like knowing this because if you want, and perhaps this is our takeaway for our listeners, if you say to yourself, you know, gee, I'm just not motivated, I think you look towards how do you get the right balance. So it's a combination of physical activity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and physical activity is going to release what? That's going to release testosterone. Okay. It's a combination of relationships and interaction. For oxytocin. Oxytocin. Yeah. And then the third was? Orexin. Orexin. O-R-E-X-I-N. Okay. And that's having the right balance of sleep, nutrition, all yeah. that stuff. So if you're finding you're not motivated to do anything, yeah. your chemistry could be out of whack. Yeah. You got to make sure you're keeping these all in balance in your life. One of the reasons why I came to this was like, I'm always interested on how to get myself to do something that I know I should do, but I don't want to do it. The because I, you don't want to be told by anybody. I don't want to be told by anybody. <laughs> but I know that. I, I mean, resemble that. I know there's things that I should do. I don't sure. want to do them. You know, getting up early, going to the gym, all that stuff. The whole point of this little nucleus accumbens is it's trying to get the dopamine to get you to this reward center. So the more that you can look at your activities and the things that you have to do and really map out exactly how that's going to give you a reward. Going back to Daniel Pink's thing, like if you're doing something, how is that going to make you feel autonomous or help your mastery or give you purpose? If you can draw that map out a little clearer, if you could maybe sit down and write a paragraph about why is it important that I do my taxes? Yeah. What do I get out of doing my taxes? <laughs> I hate doing my taxes. Yeah. But what are the benefits of it? And, you know, we could probably flip it on the other side, especially with taxes. Like, what are the negatives if I don't? But, you know, staying on this positive side, like being able to really tie in and track that a little bit, what it does is it helps your brain get you from one point to the other a little easier with a little less friction. And this nucleus accumbens, it weighs out how much energy and what the cost it is to get you to a reward center. The more you can either decrease the cost or increase the perception of the re reward you're going to get, the more motivation you're going to experience. All right, outstanding. Well, listen, I think this is a good spot to stop at because we've talked, we started today talking about the fundamentals of motivation. And I think we've not only delivered this teaching moment, you've delivered it just in an exceptional fashion. I think there's some good takeaways. Yeah. And I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge that we did a good job on this so that we feel good about That's this right. episode. So we'll be more motivated to do the next episode. That's right. Because we can revel in this reward that we've gotten right now. <laughs> Again, just to talk about the two things that we've referenced tonight, we talked about Daniel Pink's book, Drive, and I'll put a link to that in the notes. And then also this whole idea of the nucleus accumbens. I really got a lot of this from this lecture from this woman named Sherry Johnson, who's a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. There's an hour and a half lecture lecture that she gives on the neuroscience of motivation. I'll put a link to that. I think I've watched the thing like three times now. It's so great. Good. Also link uh, Daniel Pink's whiteboard video. Yeah, I'll put the whiteboard yeah, video in there. That's good. 
Any other? Should we put a picture of Johnny in there? Yeah, so Johnny can see, see who's making all the noise. All right. Well, listen, we appreciate you listening, and we'll uh, look forward to another teaching moment. I guess next episode I'm up. You're up next time. Okay. All right. Till then. Thanks. Thanks.